Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Roy Richard Grinker, the author of Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness, a compassionate and captivating examination of evolving attitudes towards mental illness throughout history and the fight to end the stigma. For centuries, scientists and society cast moral judgments on anybody deemed mentally ill, confining many to asylums. In Nobody's Normal, anthropologist Roy Richard Grinker chronicles the progress and setbacks in the struggle against mental illness stigma from the 18th century through America's major wars and into today's high-tech economy. Nobody's Normal argues that stigma is a social process that can be explained through cultural history, a process that began the moment we defined mental illness that we learn from within our communities, and that we ultimately have the power to change. Though the legacies of shame and secrecy are still with us today, Grinka writes that we are at the cusp of ending the marginalization of the mentally ill. In the 21st century, mental illnesses are fast becoming a more accepted and visible part of human diversity. Grinker infuses the book with the personal story of his family's four generations of involvement in psychiatry, including his grandfather's analysis with Sigmund Freud, his own daughter's experience with autism, and culminating in his research on neurodiversity. Drawing on cutting-edge science, historical archives, and cross-cultural research in Africa and Asia, Grinker takes readers on an international journey to discover the origins of and variances in our cultural response to neurodiversity. Urgent, eye-opening, and ultimately hopeful, Nobody's Normal explains how we are transforming mental illness and offers a path to end the shadow of stigma. Well, Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's delightful to have you today. So as we're living through the unprecedented times during the middle of the pandemic, um, I would say, so just the beginning of the vaccinations, I'd like to ask uh, ask you, how has pandemic influenced you and your work? Well, for me, it's obviously meant that I've turned to a more digital means. Uh, I typically like to do my work interviewing people in person. Um, I want to see how they live. I like to travel to places throughout the world and see how they're living. That's been that's been pretty tough, uh, but uh, you know, fortunately, there are some people who uh, I can talk to in other parts of the world that have access. And I think that one of the things that's been really great, actually, about uh, technology is that uh, people with disabilities that I interview are sometimes more comfortable uh, in remote settings where they're communicating through technology than they are in person, particularly people on the autism spectrum. And that constitutes a big part of my work. Oh, yes, for sure. That's a really interesting uh, point. Um, Yeah, you know, um, 
it's 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 something that people with disabilities for decades, you know, have been saying. Well, not not for more than a couple decades, but they've been saying, look, let's let's have greater affordances and accommodations for remote work. And all those arguments were always shot down by managers who said, no, you have to come into work because our nothing will work without you being here in person. Uh, but pretty much overnight with this pandemic, we realized that if you provide people with disabilities greater accommodations to work from home, they can be very successful. Exactly. And uh, it's such a small thing to ask as well. It's really startling to me that it hasn't been applied before. Yeah, I I don't really know uh, why it was that way. But, you know, if you imagine that you are somebody who is differently able, uh, you are you have you use a wheelchair, you use a cane or a walker. I mean, think of 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 the relief to not have to be walking outside, navigating places that may not have elevators or ramps. Uh, it's um, it, it's something that I hope will continue beyond the pandemic and will give people these uh, opportunities to structure their work in new ways. And uh, do you teach during this time? I do. I teach remotely. And it's hard to do because uh, I don't want to make every student be... Uh, showing me their video. Maybe they're not comfortable with the way they look or the way their living situation is. Uh, and I can never tell if somebody's on or or not if they turn their video off. And mm. it always is a challenge because, you know, you're, you're not sure you're reaching someone. You're not sure you're getting traction without seeing those, you know, facial expressions. On the other hand, one positive thing is that when you have a chat room, you can have people who are communicating to the other students in real time. And they say things like, great point, fantastic. Oh, that's interesting. And give these students some positive feedback that they never would have done if they were in a live setting, right? Because they're, nobody's going to mm. speak out of turn. But here you can just have people pile on and say, great point, great point, great point. So do you have maybe one or two uh, points of advice uh, to our professional professionals and uh, who are teaching uh, remotely now? Oh, well, I guess my advice <laughs> is try to keep your classes shorter than the allotted time because people seem to lose their ability to stay uh, attuned and engaged to things online uh, when they... Um, when they're on a, 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 a computer as opposed to being in person. So I really find that uh, I need to kind of cut uh, my lectures into segments. So maybe 20 minutes and then I give them a break and then another 20 minutes. Oh, that's a great point. Great. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, I was born and raised in Chicago to an unusual family, unusual because my great-grandfather was a psychiatrist. My grandfather was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. My father was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. And I was supposed to be the fourth generation. And I kind of self-sabotaged, I guess, because I didn't want to do what they wanted me to do. And hmm. I did very badly in science classes. And I did really well in social science and the arts and humanities. And um, it was... Um, a very interesting childhood, though, because it was very intellectual. My grandfather was a major figure in the history of psychiatry, and uh, he was analyzed by Sigmund Freud. 
Um, he um, really established uh, psychiatry in Chicago, founded the University of Chicago's psychiatry department, and then founded the journal, The Archives of General Psychiatry. He was the founding editor of that for uh, well over a decade. And he used to talk to me like I was an adult. I'd be 10 years old and he'd tell me about some article that was coming out in the archives of general psychiatry in order mm. to try to convince me to become a psychiatrist. Uh, he also got me summer jobs at psychiatric hospitals. And those experiences at the psychiatric hospitals really convinced me not to be a psychiatrist, not to be a doctor, but to be somebody that could look critically at how society itself treats people, um, values people with disabilities. And there are two experiences I had that were really informative for me. I mean, I was a teenager. The first one was when I bumped into a student uh, at the psychiatric hospital, a fellow student of mine from school in the seventh grade. And she was a patient and all hell broke loose. It was as mm. if I had committed a crime by seeing her. She was upset. Her parents were upset. The hospital was upset. My parents got called in. The head of the school that we were in got called in. And I was, you know, I had to promise that I would keep this confidential. And that was the first time when I really saw the stigma of mental illness, you know, in, in, in its full power, right? Because why is it so horrible that this person was in the hospital? Isn't that a good thing that she was getting treated? And then the second experience was when I saw an elderly woman who was near death and wasting away. I don't know how, how, I don't remember how big she was, how much she weighed, but she looked, she was emaciated and she couldn't even blink. She was so depressed. It was a kind of serious major depression that can kill you. And they gave her electroconvulsive therapy, it used to be called electroshock therapy. And mm -hmm. I had just seen the movie, um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So I thought it was going to be this incredibly theatrical, you know, or brutal therapy, but it wasn't. It was really calm and relaxed and she had an anesthetic and except for her big toe kind of moving a little bit, you didn't see anything. It was actually kind of disappointing to a high school student. But a few <laughs> weeks later, I saw her again and she was eating popcorn and watching TV and blinking and electroconvulsive therapy saved her life. And so those two experiences at such a young age were really powerful. One, to understand the stigma of mental illness, and two, to see the power of a therapy for treatment-resistant depression that is still so highly stigmatized that people think it's somehow torture. And yet it is the most effective therapy for treatment-resistant depression and saves lives. So how did you arrive to the choice of uh... Um, researching this topic or your interest in this topic from the perspective of anthropological uh, science? Well, you know, as I said, I was resisting being a doctor, right? So mm. uh, I remember um, in college taking a class in anthropology uh, that really the, the theme of that class was that if we go away to understand other cultures, that's not anthropology. That's only half of anthropology. Anthropology, my first professor always said, was to go away to understand other cultures, but then you have to return back to your home in order to mm -hmm. see critically your, your own world in a new light. 
you have to have this shift of perspective. That's what anthropology offers because we go and we see how people do things in other parts of the world. And we realize that the way we do things isn't the right or the only way that culture has the power to change things, you know, not to, to make it sound too mundane, but it's sort of like, you know, if, if you're European and you travel to the United States, all of a sudden you notice, wow, the cars are huge and the people are big and those streets are wide. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then when you come back home to Europe, you say, oh, my goodness, the streets are so narrow and the cars are so small. <laughs> because it's that shifting of perspective that allows you to see things that were there all, the, all along, right? But you didn't see it in that, that it, it wasn't, you weren't primed to objectify it in that way. And so for me, anthropology was a way to step outside of my own culture and look at it critically. And I realized I could actually study psychiatry and mental health, but from the perspective of somebody who is aware of how things are done differently in the world. Uh, yes, and I think in uh, your book actually has this um, very important uh, feature that uh, we are missing from many books on mental illnesses is this context that you actually put uh, the mental illness uh, discussion into. So we can we will discuss that a little bit in in a little bit. So can I just maybe tell us? Did you have any mentors that inspired you along the way or supported you? Um, well, I, I have to say my my major mentor was my grandfather. Right. He mm. he would he would give me these little seminars um, every Saturday, most Saturdays. I, I lived across the street from him. It's very rare, at least in the United States. You know, it's very rare to live across the street from your grandparent. And that was just wonderful because their door was always open to me. And my grandfather would talk to me, as I said, like an adult, even on like a Saturday or Sunday, he'd be wearing a suit and tie, He's a very formal person. And he would give me these seminars and they really inculcated in me uh, the kind of anthropological perspective, even though I don't know how much he knew about anthropology. I remember one day, it was a Saturday morning and I probably, was probably about 12 years old. And he was talking about an article that was, was just about to be published in the journal that he edited. And it was an article about how a videotape of a man who was being treated for schizophrenia in the United States was circulated to dozens of American psychiatrists and dozens of British psychiatrists. And the overwhelming majority of the British psychiatrists watched the tape of this man who was being treated in the US for schizophrenia and gave that person a diagnosis based only on the video of bipolar disorder or what was then called mm. manic depressive illness. But the majority of American psychiatrists looked at the video of this person and said, that person has schizophrenia. And I remember my grandfather saying, you know, we don't think of British culture and American culture as being so different that they would have such a completely different way of looking at the same human being. In one country, they diagnose this person with a thought disorder. In the other country, they diagnose him with a mood disorder. How can that be? Now, I don't remember the answers to those questions, but that is, that, that is the anthropological sensibility, that what we take to be truth and science and objectivity often is really what a group of people has agreed by consensus is their truth and objectivity.
interesting. Um, and also from the biological perspective, I suppose uh, coming more from uh, the uh, basic science uh, sciences, I can also say that uh, we sometimes get that even with the known uh, molecular test. It can differ between laboratories. And then, as you say, when it goes uh, to the uh, psychological sciences and psychiatry, it must be very confounded based on the culture. Yes, yes. You know, it's uh, it, it, it's uh, something that is not, as you're saying, unique to psychiatry. Um, if you are suffering from a biological condition, uh, let's say you're suffering from cancer, um, mm. that cancer will be interpreted in many different ways, depending on the society you live in. Uh, your access to treatment varies based on your wealth or your geography um, or, you know, your country's insurance system. Your experience of the treatment may vary because in one society you pray to a particular god and another one you pray to Dr. Anthony Fauci. You know, it depends on what your <laughs> society and what your culture is. And none of that stuff is visible in a microscope, right? That's all experience. And we tend to overlook experience when we medicalize, when we see things solely through the technician lens, the technician's lens, whether it's a, you know, a laboratory test for a virus or a bacterium or, uh, or, a, or a tumor. Yeah, that's a great cautionary tale. So as you chose your path uh, very, very independently, maybe you have any advice for our young career researchers, how to choose what they like and uh, how to break out maybe of uh, the rut. <laughs> um, I, at some point, you know, I just, I realized that if you don't love what you do, you're not going to be good at it. Mm. And you could, you know, I could have followed, I could have worked hard to do okay in science classes and gotten into medical school, but I don't think I would have liked being a doctor. And if I didn't like it, I'd probably be bad at it. Better to be good at what you love than to be bad at something that is just pleasing someone else, right? Um, mm. and, and, you know, my, my family was very disappointed in me and they didn't understand how an anthropologist could even succeed in the world. And, you know, it's not easy to be an academics, um, but um, but I loved it, and I did well enough to to get a job and to to write and have some readers. And you know, when I look at my book, Nobody's Normal, you know, I think that that's um, that's as good an achievement as as having been a doctor. Um, I feel that I am contributing something important and providing new perspectives, and. I think everybody I think everybody has to value what they what they love and what they think is a meaningful life. And this is something that I I think extends to people who want to diverge from the ideals of capitalism. Why not be a stay-at-home parent? I mean, by the tenets of capitalism, I guess suppose a stay-at-home parent is disabled because they're not producing any wealth. Um, or what about volunteerism? Or what about art, the arts? You know, my students here at George Washington University who love anthropology, they tell their parents about it and their parents say, well, how will you ever make money? Well, you know, money's important, but so is happiness and leading a meaningful life. And for many people with a disability, they are confronted often with this idea 
that they will never be good enough because given their disability, they won't make as much money as some other people who don't have disabilities. And that's not necessarily the way the world has to be. We can revalue, uh, change the values of what constitutes meaningful work. I mean, I have many stories I can tell you about this. You know, a woman who doesn't like the fact that her intellectually disabled daughter um, bags groceries at the grocery store, at the supermarket. But this girl, woman, loves bagging groceries. And she's good at it. She likes the stability of the task, the repetitiveness. She likes the fact that the same customers come in frequently so she knows them and she feels comfortable and protected there. And she's very proud of how well she packs the groceries so that they don't break, like eggs don't break and and milk cartons don't spill. But her mother doesn't want her to do this job because her mother believes that it's somehow a low value job. But people with intellectual disabilities may not be able to do every job. So why don't we value the jobs that they like and that they can do and which are vitally important? Well, that's absolutely uh, true, yeah. And especially that's something we've seen in the beginning of pandemic where the airline um, uh, pilots became Tesco uh, drivers in UK. So they were oh, really? uh, driving groceries. Mm-hmm. So even... Yeah, so it it definitely shifted the perspective of uh, the of, of the population, and I think that's really important. But yeah, that's an excellent match, message. Uh, important to reiterate over and over. I think. I think so. Okay. I mean, I when my my daughter, um, who's twenty nine, is autistic, and I remember once when she was uh, doing a preliminary, like a trial run, to work at a pharmacy. I went with her to go over her tasks and with her manager and the manager said, so what do you do in the morning when you first get here? And my daughter said, "Uh, the first thing I do when I get to work is I'm a cleaning lady. And that she used that phrase for whatever reason, because the first thing you were supposed to do is clean up. And Mm -hmm. I remember the manager shot back at my daughter almost a little bit aggressively and said, you are not a cleaning lady. You are a retail associate. And I thought at that moment, this is one of those moments where where a young person is taught that some kinds of professions are more valued than others, are more shameful than others. And um, those kinds of moments multiplied really do, I think, a disservice to the contributions that so many people are making to their own lives and to others oh yeah for sure this value judgment is uh, much less pervasive in the uh, neurodiverse uh, community yes so how how did you come to writing the the book nobody's normal the book with quite a provoking title (laughs) well i can tell you where the title comes from it came from my student yeah um, I was one day in my class talking about mental illness statistics, and I was talking about the the prevalence rates, you know, that X percent have autism, X percent have depression, X percent have anxiety disorders. And I could see the students sort of adding all of those statistics up inside their heads to say, well, if, you know, if we're adding all these percentages together. That's a whole lot of people who have these <laughs> conditions. And one student said, um, so isn't anybody normal anymore? And I said, nobody's normal. 
And I thought to myself, <laughs> wow, there's the title. <laughs> Nobody's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, because even if one doesn't experience a mental illness at a particular moment, the likelihood is that you will eventually, whether it's anxiety or depression or, or, or one, on, one of the other so-called common mental disorders. Um, mm. And I saw in these students a, a new openness to talking about their own conditions. One student said that when she was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, that that was the best day of her first year of college because for the first time, somebody didn't see her as lazy or stupid. And I see these students advocating for themselves and not seeing mental illnesses as something to be ashamed of and to be secretive about. And I wanted to find out what have been the factors throughout the course of history that have made mental illnesses something to be ashamed of or not. And if we can figure out the factors that help us to decrease stigma and shame, then maybe we can reinforce those and continue on what I really feel to be a very positive course. So based on your research, can you give us uh, the best definition you have for what mental illness is? And also I would like to ask, uh, can you maybe make a distinction between mental illness and neurodiversity? So can you be neurodiverse and have no mental illness, for example? To answer your second question first, of course you can be neurodiverse and not have a mental illness. Neurodiversity mm. means that you have, a, you know, that, that you have your own distinctive way of looking at the world or you share that distinctive way of looking at the world with somebody else. Uh, I mean, my, my daughter, uh, Isabel, is unbelievably good at puzzles, um, jigsaw puzzles, and sh- her spatial orientation is is incredible. Um, she could read uh, X-rays, you know, which I can't because I can't understand all the dimensionality. Um, so, you know, she is neurodiverse in that way. I mean, I'm neurodiverse in the fact that I have an ability to. Um, simultaneously hold many different pieces of a puzzle in my head, not in the world like a jigsaw puzzle, but in my head so that I can write a 450-page book. Um, neurodiversity is about difference, and it's about mm-hmm. um, diversity in the world. It's not a negative term. It's not a positive term. It's a reality that human beings are neurodiverse. What is the negative thing? is when we look at different ways of being and decide that we need to shape them or get them to conform or or you know somehow discipline them. Yeah, I I'm in a, I'm in the field of academia and we call our areas of expertise disciplines. Whether mm-hmm. it's history or psychology, anthropology, sociology, biology, they are disciplines. And it's no accident that we use that word discipline because it is a, these discipline. What they do is they control and they constrain what is considered to be quote unquote normal science or normal social science. And so, to the degree that we are disciplining the world, is also the degree to which we are potentially stifling creativity. 
Now, this is not to say that somebody who is neurodiverse doesn't suffer from mental illnesses. So take somebody on the autism spectrum. That person could need lifelong 24-hour-a-day care because their uh, autism is so profound. Mm. That person, another person with autism, could be somebody able to work um, at a company, uh, maybe computer coding or something else, and or as an engineer, or it works in Silicon Valley on software production. That doesn't mean that um, they're all the same. They're very, very different. And if we think about a spectrum, we have to think about where things change along that spectrum. Now, you and I, if we looked at a color spectrum, we could say that's orange and that's red, but we probably can't agree entirely on where orange turns to red. Exactly, right? It sort of goes over into the red and we can't figure out that border. And that's what human beings are like. We have to make decisions and judgments about when something crosses over a border. And so this is what we have to do with mental illnesses too. decide when does ordinary sadness become depression? When does shyness become autism? When does anxiety become so severe that you can't work and you can't function in your daily life and you're suffering miserably. Where it is a mental illness is where you deserve and need treatment. But so not everybody is sad. It's more, more like dichotomy rather than a spectrum as, uh, as such. No, no, I mean, it is a spectrum. It is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And but, but the decisions about when it constitutes something which should have a mental illness diagnosis is when treatment is warranted. When somebody who's just sad because a parent died, for example, can't eat anymore, can't sleep, can't go to work. Well, at that point, at that point, you need treatment. And for better or for worse, diagnoses drive treatment. You can't have a treatment, or there's no, no treatment is good if it's not going to help you, but you drive a treatment, you've got to have some kind of label or framework or diagnosis. And so when we say somebody has a mental illness, what we really mean is that they are suffering so much that they should be offered care. Yeah. So uh, one thing about struggling a little bit is uh, if we take that earlier example that you gave, uh, for example, a person with the autism who may be nonverbal or who would require maybe, you know, extra help uh, during the day to be looked after or doing their uh, daily work, but they might be quite happy. They might not suffer any depression. They can be, you know, kind of content member of society. So, so that's where I'm struggling, struggling a little bit, whether that should be considered neurodiverse. So just having different uh, requirements uh, for a normal daily functioning and if they then develop the mental illness, that is something that can be called mental illness. Or am I confusing, conflating into two different things here? Um, yeah, you know, I think it's, it's to compare neurodiversity and mental illness is a kind of like comparing apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's like comparing diversity to um, poverty and discrimination. Um, yes, they can be linked, but they are not synonyms for one another. 
and they're not they're not and they're not opposites you know um they are aspects of one another somebody who is neurodiverse is not immune from getting depression is not immune from getting anxiety or anything else but being neurodiverse in and of itself is not uh does not warrant a diagnosis unless a treatment or an intervention is needed so um yes take my daughter for instance um she uh she needed a lot of help to be able to go to school and be educated and to learn how to interact with people and indeed how to learn to talk how to learn to read and write she needed a lot more care than others and in order to do that we had to have treatments for her and interventions mm-hmm. special education but we couldn't get special education unless we had a framework that made sense to our society and autism provided that framework so she's mm-hmm. both neurodiverse and somebody who warranted extra care that makes sense yes absolutely and um thank you for making these crucial points because i think that's something that is really hard to, for people to sort of you know understand this neurodiversity and mental illness facets and how they differ so if i summarize so can mental illness be um described as when it becomes impairment to your life so you would be considered mentally uh, ill or you need treatment or it can be inconvenience to others well i think that um again if somebody you know does not i'm not talking about involuntary treatment i'm i'm just saying that um the the underlying um premise behind the mental health diagnoses is no different from the underlying premise of any other kind of diagnosis so imagine you go to your doctor and the doctor says you have high blood pressure and you say but i feel fine yes but we see that you have high blood pressure you then have to have a conversation with this clinician about how to proceed you have the right to say no i don't want to get any treatment i feel fine but there is a conversation that needs to take place because you have decided that you could go to a doctor in the first place and that you consider them to have an opinion that you value. And so maybe you end up like me taking a, a medicine for high blood pressure and it's going to be preventative to help you prevent a stroke or so on. But would I actually, you know, have to have it? Well, it's a good thing to have it and I trust that that system is going to help me in the same mm-hmm. way that when somebody is suffering terribly, we need to offer them care. You know there was a movement at a time in the 1970s where people even decided to argue that schizophrenia wasn't an illness and it was just a different way of being. Um there are people who are quirky and unusual. There are people who hear voices who really aren't impaired in their lives but they hear voices and we wouldn't say that that's necessarily a mental illness. Um but there are people who hear voices that are just terrible. telling them they're horrible people and telling them to do terrible things and the suffering is extraordinary and why would we not want to provide care 
for people who are being tormented by such delusions and hallucinations. On the other hand, we know that just being different from some imagined norm isn't itself an illness, except where in the past we, we have said that it is. I mean, think about homosexuality. Being gay during the 1950s and 1960s was thought by you know nine out of 10 mental health professionals to be a mental illness. Mm. Well, my father always said that. He was a pretty conservative clinician. He'd say, yes, everybody I've ever seen with homosexuality is mental, mentally ill because they're suffering. And my daughter once asked him, yeah, but if they're suffering because it's society that's discriminating and, and, and being prejudicial against people who are gay, how can you call it a mental illness? And so um, <laughs> what, what um, we need to do is understand that so much of the stigma of mental illness has come from this imagined norm we have out there, that we're supposed to be like X, Y, or Z. This is what Nobody's Normal argues. It argues that the road to reducing stigma is not education. It's not awareness. The road to reducing the stigma of mental illness is to change the ideals of what we consider to be the person. If the ideal person can be a much more diverse um, group of people, then we will reduce stigma. So if being gay does not constitute a, an attack on the ideal, we will reduce the stigma of homosexuality. If being autistic does not mean that you are destined to a life in an institution, which it used to be, then we can reduce the stigma. But campaigns, slogans, education, that doesn't work. What works throughout history, and this is what nobody nor nobody's normal argues in a you know, big swath of history, it's as our ideals of what constitutes the person change, so too does stigma. So where do you think the resistance uh, to, the, uh, to confronting these norms comes from? Do we need a generational change? I, that's a really great point. I, I think there is a generational point, and I think it has to do with the lessons learned from the civil rights advocacy, from transgender advocacy, from the neurodiversity movement, from LGBTQ advocacy, where people are refusing to accept the definitions of themselves that others have made. And they're saying, I'm going to take ownership and decide that I'm going to adopt such a term like autistic and redefine it and not have it defined by the DSM or the ICD or some group of doctors. You know, it's unusual. I end the book with a discussion of this famous American novel, The Scarlet Letter. And it kind of seems when I tell people about it, they always seem to think it's odd that I'd end a book on mental illness by talking about this famous book about adultery during the 17th century in the United States, um, in the colonies. And, um, and it's because um, this, the, the, this woman who's the um, major main character, Hester Prynne, uh, has been essentially exiled for committing adultery and forced to wear uh, a scarlet, a red letter A on her blouse, on her, on her breast. And after years of being away, she comes back to the village where she had been punished and she's still mm. wearing the letter A. 
And people say, why are you still wearing this letter A? It's been years. You don't have to wear this A anymore. All the, even the judges, they say, yeah, you don't have to wear that. And she says, oh, no. And she uses the word stigma. And she says, it has ceased to be a stigma. It is now uh, a sign of my strength and endurance. And she settles in the village. And because she had redefined what that quote unquote sin meant to her, other people started to see her as someone who could understand them because everybody's got problems. And so when they had problems, the women would come to her for help because they knew that she would understand them. It was like this letter A was a some sort of ancient degree in clinical psychology. And by redefining the um, letter A for herself, it was like the the LGBTQ folks who who reclaim queer from the bigots, who redefine what transgender means, not as gender dysphoria, but as a gender affirming process. And or the people who take the word autism and reframe it in terms of neurodiversity. These are very positive developments. And I see this in this new generation of, of students. The student who comes up to me at the beginning of class and says, I'm autistic, I don't make good eye contact, but I am paying attention and you should feel free to call on me. The student who stands in front of the lecture hall and says to the students on the first day of the semester, I have Tourette's disorder, I might say something that startles you, or you might even find offensive. These are people who are advocating for themselves. And that, bringing it out in the open, framing it for an increasingly accommodating public is really what is going to do the work of re reducing stigma. Science isn't gonna do it, it's culture. So were mental illnesses always accompanied by stigma? Yes, they were. Um, before the mid-1700s, roughly, in France, in, in Germany, in England, um, you really didn't have distinctly mental illnesses. So yeah, people were stigmatized for having all kinds of diseases, but they weren't construed as distinctly mental. Right? The idea that you could separate a mental disorder from a disease of the body um, that's, that's something that's only, you know, a few hundred years old. And so the stigma of mental illness couldn't exist until mental illnesses existed. Just not to say that people weren't depressed or anxious or had schizophrenia thousand years ago. It's just mm. that it wasn't construed as a distinctly mental illness. It was the possession by devil, wasn't it? Well, it could have been, but, you know, even Descartes, Though he mm. distinguished between the body and the mind, believed that the mind existed in the pineal gland of the brain. So, you know, the, the idea that the body could be separated off into the mental and the physical, that's that's very recent. And we know it's also something that that doesn't really doesn't really hold up very well to science. There's a really interesting new field of um, well, epigenetics has been around a long time. But what's new is the epigenetics of trauma. And one of the things that scientists are starting to show is that you can actually pass on to your progeny, to your children, um, alterations in the enhancers and regulators of your genes. And those 
can change with experience, especially with trauma. Now, we all learned in school that Lamarck was wrong. You cannot acquire a characteristic in your life and then pass that on to your children. But epigenetics is showing that Lamarck wasn't completely wrong because some of the changes that are at the epigenetic level around gene regulation can be passed on. And so, for example, we see the, um, the children and grandchildren of people who experienced the Dutch famine um, having higher rates of schizophrenia than those who did not live through that famine. We see that people who have traumatic and adverse childhood circumstances have children who also bear some of the symptoms of a traumatic past, even if they didn't experience it themselves. So if you look at the epigenetic information, whether it's famine or other kinds of trauma, it doesn't make sense then, does it, to say that an illness is of the body or of the mind? It's both. Yeah, for sure. And also talking about uh, more about environmental factors. So uh, you've uh, traveled a lot and uh, spoke to many people in different countries. Do you have uh, any patterns of the environment or so social uh, structures that are more conduct conducive to less mental illness or better management of it? That's a great question. Yeah, when I think of environment, because I'm an anthropologist, I'm really thinking like the social environment, um, you know, not, I'm not thinking about the climate mm. and things like that. Um, and um, one of the things that has uh, repeatedly come up in a number of studies, and I've seen it myself in my own work, is that um, the, though the prevalence of mental illnesses may not be terribly uh, different across the world, that this, you know, prevalence rates are fairly static. Um, mm. The the exactly what you said in your question the um, the the severity of it and the outcomes vary. So in certain non-industrialized locations in Nigeria and India, for example, scientists have found that people with schizophrenia sometimes, actually often, have better outcomes that they marry or have work or they uh, they have less frequent and less severe psychotic episodes than mm. they do in, say, London or Washington, D.C. And no one knows exactly why this is, right? Because social environment is very hard to quantify and objectify. But the, the sort of you know, consensus view is that when you have greater social supports and less isolation and atomization in society, you have a greater possibility for inclusion into family and community life. And you have the greater possibility um, that you will be cared for. And sometimes even, even getting treatment. Uh, if you're living with family, the family may actually bring you to care. Um, so uh, in fact, the one thing that most clinicians I think can agree on in the world is that social supports are the one thing that do make a huge difference in outcomes. Now, when I go to a place like Namibia, Kalahari Desert, there's a little boy I met there who is non-speaking, autistic, doesn't have a diagnosis of autism, but I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure he would have that diagnosis in the United States. And I remember asking his parents who was going to take care of him when they died. 
And they just didn't even understand my question. And they said, mm. well, the whole village isn't going to die. You mean if we, the whole village die? I mean, they, they didn't understand the question because in their mind, there will always be somebody there to take care of their little boy. Yeah, interesting. So if you imagine your perfect world, what would be sort of the social setting or, you know, supportive setting? And uh, will mental illness terms be part of it? Or would, would you like to redefine it somehow? Well, in, I guess in my perfect world, mental illness terms wouldn't be any more stigmatizing than, than anything else we have as a condition. But societies change and societies are always going to find something to stigmatize. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that this is something that's always going to be an ongoing struggle, but let's just take the word autism, which when my daughter was diagnosed in 1994 was not very well understood. And the, the definition of it was fairly narrow. It didn't tend to include people who had seizure disorders, didn't tend to include people with intellectual disabilities. It was a fairly narrow, uh, narrowly defined term. And, um, and now uh, autism is something that we understand as this big spectrum and not necessarily mm. so devastating. You know, you look at, I've looked at files from the 1950s and they say, this child's speech is difficult and is socially awkward. He must go to an institution to preserve the honor and prestige of the family. And people did that. Even the father of child psychology, Eric Erickson, sent his kid with Down syndrome to an institution and came home and told the other kids and his friends and family that the baby had died at birth. And they didn't even know they had a brother, these kids, until mm. their brother died um, at the age of 21. And so um, when we look at the way autism is today, we see that it is just not something that people freak out about. So I tell the story in Nobody's Normal of my daughter giving a graduation speech to 3,000 people near the White House in Washington, D.C. Oh, and wow. it was a graduation speech. Um, you know, all the kids who were giving speeches were so nervous. But my daughter, because she's autistic, she wasn't nervous at all. It didn't phase her. And she had her speech prepared and was going to give it. And when she started to give the speech, and she was the first first time, by the way, anybody with a disability in this high school had given a speech. Um, she started with her very sing-songy voice. She has an odd kind of rhythm and pattern to her voice. Um, if you met her, you'd know after talking to her for 15 seconds that she was probably autistic. Um, mm. And you could hear people in the audience whispering, kind of maybe a little chuckle here or there, maybe murmuring. Whispers, murmurs, those are the sounds of stigma. And then when she got to a sentence in which she said, people with autism like me, all of a sudden the audience quieted down because they had a framework now that was a non-stigmatized framework or at least less stigmatizing than ever before. Whereas they saw her as weird or bizarre or enigmatic before. Now they had a framework, and that framework is largely because of the neurodiversity movement less and less stigmatizing. She got a standing ovation at that speech, and it was a powerful moment for me both as a father 
and as a social scientist to see what a non-stigmatized framework can do for the world. Oh, that's such a such a great message. <laughs> so are you hopeful about uh, the change in conversations around mental health and what can we look forward to? Well, I think that increasingly we are going to give people opportunities to fail and to take risks. And I see that as a very positive move. One of the things that's a prob- always been a problem is that we tend to protect people with disabilities from failure while those without disabilities, we encourage them to take risks and fail. Taking risks and failing is part of human growth and development. It's part of how we challenge ourselves and how we, we grow and how we find how to lead a meaningful life. And mm-hmm. so I'm hoping that increasingly employers, um, and there are many in Europe and in the United States, uh, will give more and more people with disabilities the opportunities Uh, and not short circuit and jump to conclusions and say, well, because they're autistic, they can't work here, or because they have Down syndrome, they can't do this job. You know, I think that um, one of the lessons that I write about in Nobody's Normal is that when companies have developed autism hiring programs, it's been a tide that raises all boats. So that if people see that autism is appreciated, they feel more comfortable talking to their colleagues and their bosses about the fact that they might be depressed or anxious mm. or having symptoms of menopause or who knows you know what but it's a it's a it generalizes to other areas of life and and so um i think that mental health issues are becoming more and more a common feature of the way we think about the workplace Excellent. Right. So we've taken up a lot of your time. And can you tell us what are you currently working on? Well, I'm currently working on a project with colleagues that um, has a mental health component to it, but it's, it's much um, bigger than that, um, which is to look at how human beings uh, have been creating new forms of ritual during the pandemic. Hmm. It asks the question, particularly in the context of, say, funerals, How do we mourn when we can't gather? How do we celebrate weddings when we cannot gather? How do we perform other kinds of rituals at a social distance? How are we using virtual forms of communication, whether it's Zoom or some other platform, as a way to continue to to be social? And so we took this opportunity of the pandemic to really try and explore um, the resilience and the innovation and creativity of people to um, continue with the social networks and the social interactions that are so important to us, but in new ways. So it's, a, it's really um, an, a window into creativity. Sounds like a really exciting project. And we actually had uh, John Hartigan earlier in uh, uh, on our podcast who was talking about rituals, but it was about shaving horses. I suppose you would not be looking into shaving horses anytime soon. No, no, but we're, you know, we're looking into uh, all kinds of fascinating um, examples of 
of of how people are, uh, how the funeral industry is changing, um, how people are are finding ways to um, to honor the dead. You know, there was this one woman I interviewed, and she she couldn't get flowers from a flower shop during the height of the pandemic because the shop was closed, and she knows knew her mother loved flowers. And she just didn't know how to honor her mother. And finally, she saw some wildflowers somewhere, and she she picked them. Uh, and they were they were actually in her yard, her mother's yard. And she took mm-hmm. those to the to the burial, and she put them in the coffin. And she, I remember her telling me over Zoom. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know where the quote came from, but she seems to think it came from somewhere. She said, "You know, it's like they say, when everything is stripped away." sometimes what you have left is all you need. And it's very moving to see how people are uh, making their way through this world in the absence of what they're used to. Oh, looking forward to that project. So hopefully if it culminates in a book, you can come and talk to us about it. (laughs) That would be great. So uh, where can our listeners find more information about your work, but also the book? Well, nobody's normal. Um, is available, you know, on any any site. Um, I know the people. It's we, it, it's just come out, you know, in the United States. So some mm-hmm. of the translations haven't yet appeared, um, but it will be translated into um, Chinese, Korean, Turkish, Polish, Russian, uh, Brazilian, Portuguese, among other languages. Um, but it's published by W. W. Norton Press, and it's available as a Kindle as an audio book in English and, um, and as a uh, $17 US book on Amazon and other places like that. So uh, it's easy to find. Nobody's normal. How culture created the stigma of mental illness. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Mm-hmm.